previously on The Trade Waiters. And I kind of have a sense of how long it takes to read this width of manga, but I forgot that this is Nausicaa, and it's way denser than any no other manga. Uh, this book is an exercise in like things I find super gross, which is mold <laughs> and bugs, mm -hmm. um, but it made me really sympathetic to both of them. We are terrible. We're like the <laughs> worst thing ever. And the world would be a better place if we weren't around. Yeah. It might be tempting to think of her as a foil, but I find that she's more of a reflection or a parallel. Oh, Nausicaa. okay. Because um, you see this, despite Kushana being a warlord in some ways, there's this depth of compassion to her. The Petegian. Oh, boy. Yeah, that guy. Is it Termekian? Torumekian? Torumekian, yeah. Torumekian. Welcome to the Trade Waiters. Uh, we are already in the middle of episode two of our two-part series on Nausicaa of the Valley of Wind by Hayao Miyazaki. This episode will be the second half of the series. So if you have not yet listened to the podcast where we did the first half, you might want to listen to that first. And also be aware that if you have not read these books, we are going to tell you everything that happens. Yeah, spoiler alert. Uh, also with the movie, we're going to talk a little bit about the movie, I think. Yes. Last episode I talked about Miyazaki and how this book came about. There are a couple of things that I missed that I want to just throw in right now. One was that in the introduction to one of the volumes of this that I have, he talks about his inspiration for the character of Nausicaa. Uh, and he hmm. has two sort of literary sources for where he came up with this character from. Oh, yeah, it's in that uh, edition too. It was appeared in volume one of the original Japanese version of the book, published in 1987. Okay. So he said that the name Nausicaa comes from a minor character in the Odyssey, who he first became familiar with in like a Greek mythology dictionary or encyclopedia or something, and was really intrigued by this character who took care of Odysseus when he washed up on shore in a... Um, like injured state and this princess Nausicaa took care of Odysseus and sent him on his way and when he actually finally read the Odyssey he was a little disappointed on how small a part this character played in the whole story and then he was also inspired by a character from Japanese literature the girl who liked insects I think is what she's called yeah the mm -hmm. princess who loved insects yeah uh, and so he sort of combined those two ideas to create his character. Can mm -hmm. I just say, like, yeah. an aside, at the um, end of that little piece, he has a sentence where he says, but now I have to relearn the hard way why I concluded that I had no talent for comics and gave them up so long ago. <laughs> so he's, he's the ultimate comic book artist because not only did he produce this amazing work, but he felt like he did a terrible job and then just quit. So he's just like embodying all that being a cartoonist is. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does anyone know why he said that? Does anyone know his critiques of his own work? I think he's just being self-depreciating. Like to, to a degree that 
is discouraged in Western culture. I think cartoonists have an inherent sense of being self-depreciating. Uh, I know I'm kind of like that a lot, and I try not to be. Just a little. Just a little. Yeah, I try not to be because I know it's bad for promoting your work. No one's going to want to read your book if you tell them it's bad. Oh, that's stupid. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, and I kind of, part of me really likes that you can actually get away with that as a cartoonist in Japan. You can say, oh, I hate my work, and people won't take you seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Though, you know, I mean, uh, Mizuki Shigeru, who got a shout out last episode, he uh, had a, a, some advice for up and coming artists uh, that was going on Tumblr recently. Oh, I saw that. So good. His that was, was all amazing. super positive and was just like, just keep drawing and feel good about what you're doing and like, just draw for yourself and don't care about what other people criticize you for. And oh, I was, yeah, he, he was. This is why he's still drawing comics at the age of, like, 85, and <laughs> Miyazaki quicks. Miyazaki's too hard on himself. Mm. <laughs> you know what we forgot to do at the beginning of this episode? We forgot to do our character-revealing question. Oh. There's still time. I guess we could do that now. Yeah, I, I have some questions. I guess we can questions. still reveal our characters, because we haven't sure. said our names yet. Kathleen's <laughs> favorite part of the episode. Especially given that Wait, we have no, a... Wait, no, I like that part of the episode. <laughs> I hate the spoiler warning. God, why are you giving me a hard time? <laughs> this is so rude. Well, well we, we have to do that's this. That's our character revealed. We, we have yeah. to do this, because we have a special guest today. So we're going to start with our special guest. So the character revealing question is, what is something in nature that terrifies you? And what's your name? Hi, so my name is Jess Pollard, and um, I'm going to have to go with dogs if they count as a thing in nature. Okay. I have become afraid of dogs. Mm. I feel that. <laughs> Man, I like pictures of the dogs of dogs on the internet, and that's fine, but the moment one is like actually in my physical space, I get kind of like on edge. Yeah, I mean, I live in North Vancouver, and I've almost been attacked by multiple ah. dogs. Hmm. Um, to share a short story, I was coming home from school one night and there was a massive Rottweiler in the dark, just standing in the middle of the road, staring. And he started running and barking at me and I had to like run away and run up to the front door of a house. So I've had some scary experiences did, with dogs. That's really did, unsettling. Did the Rottweiler's owner slowly saunter up behind him going, oh no, it's fine. He's, you know, he's friendly. Yeah. No, I don't need a leash. He's friendly. I don't... No, this yeah. is the thing. The, there was no owner. <laughs> the dog was roaming. I see. <laughs> Frightening force of nature. And, you know, my mom has a chihuahua, and that's the really the scariest thing. This little chihuahua was barking at you. <laughs> I, I thought that you were just going to say it's scary because it's sort of nature's mistake. <laughs> no, that's that's man's mistake. Oh, right. And no, no, no. Similar the, to... The pug the is man's fits, mistake. Fits the theme of today's book. Yeah. <laughs> Biological engineering, these terrifying creatures. Oh. This should it's not good, have been. It's a good segue into Nazca. All right. Okay. Uh, Kathleen. All right. I'm Kathleen Gross, and um, I think I'll have to go with the ocean is mm. pretty <laughs> terrifying. And, like, the things that are down there and just how deep it goes and all that water. There's a mini comic that Cloudscape published that you need to read. I've seen it. Okay, all right. I was around, okay. I think, when that happened. <laughs> yeah, I find, like, large bodies of water kind of unsettling. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. okay. Well, I'm Jeff Ellis, and I almost would have said the ocean as well, but um, since you've said the ocean, I'm going to say bears. <laughs> bears are pretty terrifying. Okay. <laughs> 
All right, never mind. That's fine. Moving <laughs> they'll on. Just, they'll just eat you. That, that's, that's, yeah, yeah, all right, whatever. Tear your face no, off. No, let's just go on. Go on, Jonathan. Okay. You know what's much <laughs> scarier than bears? Uh, I'm Jonathan Dalton, by the way. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, that is much scarier no, no. than bears. <laughs> I, I have never, to my knowledge, ripped anyone's face off. <laughs> I'm so glad to your knowledge was just put in there. <laughs> um, what I am terrified by is large birds. Um, mm. If you've ever seen a picture of a shoebill, they are—they look like dinosaurs. And I'm sure it's the dinosaur connection. It's not all birds. Like, crows are fine. Anything that's kind of bird-shaped is fine. Eagles are fine. Uh, but if, it, if it's a bird that looks like a dinosaur, then I don't want to have anything to do with it. Hmm. <laughs> Cranes, pelicans. Just no. No, no. <laughs> I just picture them like running across the landscape like Jurassic Park. <laughs> if they could, if a shoebill could figure out how to eat you, it would. It's constantly trying to work it out, Jonathan. That's why it stares. It stares with its evil eyes, <laughs> stewing with, in anger that it can only eat fish and not humans. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> if it could. All right, so uh, let's move back to Nausicaa then. Yes, please. Uh, should we do a little summary of what happens in Volume 2? Sure. So Volume 2, all the different threads start to come together. First, they have to overcome the giant slime mold that is wiping out the Dorok lands the, from the first volume. And it kind of solves itself. Like, there's basically nothing they can do to stop this mold from wiping out the landscape. But it turns out the insects have a plan already. This is what they do, is they attack the mold, and they die, and their bodies become seed beds for the forest fungus. And the forest fungus kind of eats the mold and consumes it and becomes part of the forest. So they can't save those lands. They're gone forever. They're part of the forest now. But at least the mold isn't going to continue wiping out the rest of civilization. This was an interesting part of it, is that the, the Omu basically said you know, like the mold is confused and angry and so we're going to uh, let it eat us and when it eats us it's going to kind of absorb our calm basically hmm. and and it, like by by eating the omu it's going to calm it's calm it down and become normal mold again uh it was essentially i think what what the omu was saying and i thought that that mm -hmm. that was really interesting mm -hmm. um and actually this uh is actually the first chapter here is what we referenced at the end of the last uh, book, which was the the prince uh, remembering or having the dream about being a clone and then remembering his father's death and then basically immediately being murdered by his brother. Yeah. And uh, and this also, this opening uh, chapter is also when we meet the Hydra, which yeah. I will also say are terrifying. Oh, so upsetting. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad they don't really exist, because if, if those really exist, that's what I would have said as the thing that I'm most afraid of in nature. It's yeah. like a cactus packed with intestines. Yes, yeah. I also got the cactus feeling from it. And you, they can only be killed if you destroy their head. If you just, like, blow a hole in their body, they'll recover. And they've got, like, masks strapped to their faces that have spikes going into their faces. Like, uh -huh. I don't know, I found it very a little bit kind of visceral, like, the pain that they would be going through, like, with the face masks. And then also there's one where, I think this happens a couple times, where they get, like, um, 
cut in half almost from explosions and it's kind of like running away on its hands yeah yeah while its yeah. insides drag like that was so upsetting <laughs> yeah oh and then they feed them by like taking um a, a funnel and like poking it in the top of their head and then filling it with mush it's like reverse tapping for like maple syrup <laughs> <laughs> it's the reverse of that gotta feed the hydra yeah <laughs> oh. and when the um Holy Emperor later on says that he has a Hedra-like body. Yeah. So he still is basically immortal, but any injuries that happen, like, he feels them, but eventually he can repair and be fine. Mm -hmm. Like, that was like, oh, why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> like, I understand why, but also, oh, God. Yeah. That was good foreshadowing. Oh, yeah. Things yeah. that happen later in the story. Yeah. When... I'm just jumping ahead, but when he's just the head and he gets <laughs> flung down on the ship, I was like, okay, yeah, that's going to fall off later, and that's going to be the end of yeah. him. Yeah. I thought that was a weird bit of both horrific and comedic moment. Yeah. That yeah. Well, well he, he makes some jokes about that, like, because at that yeah. point he's supposed to be married to Kushana, and he's just like, wait, you're just dropping your husband's head on the ground? What kind of wife for you? <laughs> and then he just gets thrown overboard, and his head is, like, flying through the sky, and he's like, well, I guess that's the end of me. Yeah, yeah. He's just sort of like, all right, uh, world domination didn't really work. I got Which, sorry. Now, flashing back to the beginning, I will say, like, this character, who's, um, I guess, the Toromekian prince. Right? No, no, that's no. that's the emperor. That or this is, is the emperor. Is sorry, the, holy the emperor. emperor. Sorry, With that, the uh, giant eye. Is he mask. the holy emperor or the? Yes, he's okay, the holy emperor. The emperor. That's the that's right. older brother. Okay, so I would say like the. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So I would say the holy emperor who we haven't met, right? He, he isn't in any of these first volume. He's referenced, but he's we never referenced, see him. He's referenced, we never see him. As soon as he shows up, it was like, wow. Like, that guy just stole the show. <laughs> like, I thought that these other guys that sh showed up were bad guys, but he's horrible. <laughs> because he's just, he doesn't care about anyone but himself, and he just makes no bones about it. And he's so arrogant. He's he so cocky. He doesn't even care about himself. Yeah. He, That's, yeah, he's he can just terrible. casually say, oh, I'm dead now. Yeah, he's so yeah. He terrible. cares about nothing. He yeah. is nihilism embodied. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Yeah. That was an interesting theme running throughout about how it's like nihilism, nihilism that yeah. is like evil or just like not great and not necessarily the path you want to tread down I think. Mm, but sort also of. sometimes it's okay. I don't know. Yeah. I wasn't sure of the relation to nihilism. It was like, interesting. Like certainly yeah, this is not a take on nihilism I've ever seen before where most examples I can think of in fiction are kind of very much against the idea and this is kind of okay with it. It's like comfortable with darkness. I think I think this is a bit of the Japanese perspective. It's sort of that Zen Buddhism coming up against the atomic bomb. Mm. And it's just like, well, we're awful. We kill each other. We're going to have to be okay with that. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's really, it's such a complex work. Um, and I don't think I could really define it or do it justice to talk about the nihilism. But I, I think he was trying to draw a distinction between nihilism and letting things die and letting yourself die and letting destruction occur and pacifism in a positive sense in mm. terms of peace and letting things be and letting nature take control but okay. they're more they do overlap somewhat so yeah. Nausicaa gets accused of nihilism mm -hmm. at the end of the story and she has aspects of that mm -hmm. but I think that there is it attempts to define a difference between the two between pacifism and nihilism yeah well, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah I think that um 
something else too. I mean, this is something. I mean, this relates so much to the intro of this book. Is like you look at the the prince in his in his regeneration tank and like the needles stuck in him and like all this horrible stuff that's been used to keep him alive for so long. And you look at the the emperor with his clone body and like all of the horribleness of him and. I think there's a theme here of 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 accepting death that mm-hmm. to cheat death like this is what these people have had to do to cheat death they've been alive for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years right and so we're all sitting here like oh man like man I'm gonna I've only got about 90 years like I'm so worried but like you know this is the cost of extending beyond that that natural time and I think that this is kind of Miyazaki's message and a little bit maybe that again kind of that that maybe Zen message is like, everything dies. You're going to die. Everyone's going to die. And it's better to accept that than to like fight against it. And, and like when Nausicaa is accused of nihilism, it's when she is like saying, let's stop being artificial. Let's just let the chips fall where they may. And, and the accusation of nihilism is leveraged at her because she's just suggesting, let's not artificially prop things up. Let's just, see what happens like maybe humanity will die out or maybe humanity will survive but we'll do it without artificially intervening we'll just let things play out naturally and 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 i think that that's a big theme here is just like stop trying to force it like let the natural world play out the natural order of things is you get old and you die and the moment you start like going through these unnatural surgeries and stuff like you know it gets really crazy and 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 i think like you know we all on a certain level we entertain these ideas of immortality but i don't think we realize like the true cost of that like to live forever like what does that really mean what does that mean not only to your body but to your mind and to your soul and to other people if you're the one who's immortal and someone else isn't mm-hmm. that puts you on a whole other level than that other person mm-hmm. yeah cuz i think part of this is that um, and this is jumping right to the end here, so do, but do that's wanna, okay. Yeah. Should we finish our? I was gonna say, should we do like a quick kind of yeah, okay. summary of this of this oh, book? There's yeah. a lot going on. We'll, we'll come back to that. So um, <laughs> the yeah, there's a lot going on in volume two. Uh, so they overcome the or they survive the slime mold basically. And at this point, the two empires, Dorok and Tromechia, are in ruins. The most of Dorok has been overcome by the forest. Turumekia has lost most of its royal family uh, and is worried about Durok invading them. And basically, everyone kind of understands that the world is doomed and all we're doing is making it worse, but no one seems to be able to stop. Where Turumekia is worried that Durok is going to invade them, and so they're going to invade Durok first. And this, this sort of inevitability about continuing this war even though there's nothing to be gained, and everyone knows that. And meanwhile, uh, Nausicaa is sort of gathering new allies. She gets a bunch of worm handlers who follow her around. They decide that she's a goddess, and that they're going to do everything they can for her. And um, there's... uh, I don't even remember what else. Oh, there's that priest guy who kind of... Switches sides like he's yeah. one of the yeah. ones that initiates the mold, but then he kind of realizes a little bit what he's yeah doing like and they sort of... accuse him of being the one whose plan this was yeah and then he kind of changes his mind and realizes his mistake, but his own people aren't willing to forgive him 
Um, so he has to kind of deal with that. And there's Kikuku. Mm-hmm. Oh, Chikuku. Chikuku or something? Yeah, Chikuku. That's it. Chikuku. Yeah, it was like Ch- Ch- Chika something was the priest and Chikuku was the uh, yeah. thing or something. Ch- Chika. Chikuku is the little kid. And yeah. Then, yeah, uh, I'm going to look it up here. So they find this little kid in an, an oasis who's a relic of uh, an ancient religion and they, he is psychic. Yes. And it turns out to be very useful to Nausicaa. Yeah. Uh, Charuka, Charuka is the prince. Okay. Or sorry, the priest. The priest, yeah. Charuka is the priest. And then there's the, um, the, the god warrior who we find out about in volume one, but he's, the god warrior is just kind of this threat in the background where someone has unearthed this god warrior. These were the things that destroyed the world in the seven days of fire. And in the second volume, they drag this out of its pit and sort of give it life and fly it out into the world with a plan to use it as a weapon against Tauromachia. But once again, it doesn't work out very well. Yeah, they (laughs) try to destroy it, but then it comes to life and it's like a newborn baby that adopts... uh, Nausicaa as its mother. Yeah. And it is even more terrifying than the Hedra. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the thing, this is one of the things about this book, is the sense of scale. Like, uh, at the very beginning of the book, we're introduced to these insects, and they're these giant insects, and whoa, that's terrifying, giant insects. And then we're introduced to the Omu, which is, it's an even bigger insect, that's terrifying, look at the size of that. And then later on, we see a whole herd of Omu, and it takes up the whole landscape, and this is like one scale higher than the last thing we saw. And then there's the mutant slime mold, which overcomes an entire herd of Omu. Uh, and then there's the God Warrior, which can wipe out anything. Everything just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, yeah. The, the progression is, is great. The storytelling, that the stakes keep getting higher and higher. And I, I really like that aspect of it. Yeah, I think, I think that's what made uh, Volume 2... A little bit of an easier read for me because I felt like the mold was almost the climax of of the first story arc, and it was like that. This was setting up all the pieces, and they were setting up that this this empire, like the was it the Dorak or the Toromekians, had this god warrior. I forget who one well, of them had. One of the empire empires had found this god warrior, and then the, the other empire had the little sphere that was going to activate it, and mm-hmm. that was kind of the plot point in the first volume. You got, and then you set up the worm handlers and all the different empires, and it was a lot of setup. And then I felt like this was like all the dominoes falling over. So like the mold like gets concluded, and then you know there's just all of this action kind of leading you through, and just ever increasing stakes and just higher and higher drama and action. And and I think that, that made volume two just a little easier to kind of push through because it was just like action, 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 where the first one was a lot of setup. I feel like this was just a lot of payoff. Yeah, yeah. I found the second volume a bit uh, e- an easier go, I think, because at that point I'd sort of figured out who was who and what was going on, and I was just, like, on the edge of my seat the whole time. Like, mm-hmm. really, like, things kept coming up, like, when she winds up in that um, garden with the mm-hmm. strange man, mm-hmm. and... Mm. It's sort of like everything's glossed over for a while. It's like, oh, what's going on here? Like, how does this tie into the rest of it? And that was... Do we ever find out his name? I don't remember. I don't know 
Sophie's name. I know, no, because uh, that's a plot point because he asks her name and she's like, well, you haven't told me yours, so I'm not going to tell you mine or something. Like they make a whole point yeah. about how oh, yes. it's being evasive. So she's not going to be fully like open to him or her either. Them. Uh, them. Yeah. And I, you know, see, like, I think that was something that they set up. That was a good precursor to the end of the book because in that sequence, Nasca essentially finds this really advanced piece of future of of the of the old future world, right? Like, if that's a way to say <laughs> it, but it's like she she's in basically a, a protected compound that has a supercomputer inside it, and it has all of the music and poetry and literature archived in it and the guardian is like a hologram that's maybe not at all what it was was it no no we're it, never given any or whatever it answer is. i guess not you don't know what it is they but it say was... at one point that he's like the hedra oh that's right sorry he has a hedra uh, boy yeah. not yeah sorry and the thing's full of books it's not a computer yeah or it's or maybe that sorry that's it's hard to know it it's all well, very okay okay maybe like, it is maybe it, i can't say sorry. for certain it, sorry, it maybe had hard and soft cop soft copies but anyways um I will stop being as antagonist. Here. All right. Like, <laughs> Anyways, the dude was like but, a heat But yeah, you're right. Sorry, you reminded me. Yeah, he was. He, but like, I, I just sort of felt like it was definitely set up as this like archive of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it really felt like this gave you a taste of just the super advanced technology that had been before. And it's like she sort of stumbled across this. Maybe I'm just thinking about it as a computer because that's the equivalent I could imagine is that like. This would be like if in like Mad Max someone came across like a computer that just had like a database of like all this information. It's like Nasca discovers this like repository of just like all of this culture and information. Well, also that the has species this, too. Yeah, and it, oh, that's right. It has all these sort of it's like a Noah's Ark. Extinct it's got all species. these in, extinct species inside, and this slightly antagonistic caretaker that's not a human it's like this artificial being that's like overseeing it and mm -hmm. has its own kind of agenda i don't know it was really interesting and i thought that set up the final act really well to kind of you're like oh it's this but kind of on a whole other level right yeah it did seem to exist in a bit of a fantasy like a nebulous space because she she's flying over this plant place and it looks like a bunch of ruins of a regular town and then she goes in and she's sort of transported into this um, place, which is this, you know, like you were saying, this beautiful garden with this huge library and all of these animals that couldn't possibly live there. And then when she leaves that zone, it disappears again. It's, it's hidden away again. So it, I, I was also wondering, it's very surreal. Like, is this real? Is it literal? Is it mm. physical? Is it a computer? Um, mm -hmm. And I was also very unclear. And also the, the caretaker um, shapeshifts. It mm -hmm. becomes yeah. a woman at some point. It becomes like her, he becomes, or she or, she or they become like, um, her mother, Nausicaa's mother. So mm -hmm. it's like really a, an interesting scene. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I wasn't even, I wasn't sure how to interpret it either. I enjoy the choices Nausicaa makes as the book progresses. Like, especially like that scene, she's sort of like making a choice as to how she's going to approach the, um, what is it, the temple or the shrine or... The, yeah. What's it called? Uh, the, the, the crypt. Yes, yeah. the crypt. Oh, yeah. That's the crypt it. in Shua. In Shua. And sort of like how she's going to decide to let things play out. Because mm -hmm. I feel like, personally, if I were in her shoes, like there were a lot of decisions where I was like, 
oh, why did you do that? Like, I maybe would have decided, like, oh, we want to preserve this. And, like, especially the scene where all those eggs of future people who are, like, yeah. genetically engineered to survive after all the mold is gone. Like, when that's destroyed, I was like, no, what are you doing? <laughs> and then pulled back and went, oh, oh, I see what you're doing. It's part of this, like, greater theme of, like, life and death are part of a cycle and the earth is greater than just humanity. Let it play out as it will. Mm -hmm. Like... Well I mean, yeah, we should we should talk a little bit about what what is the ultimate like what's the big reveal in fact that I think talking to the, the I'm gonna call him the librarian, talking to the librarian in that scene kinda sets up that dilemma, which is that the the, the big twist here is that the mold and the miasma, the, the toxic air, is actually clean air and that uh, you know, it's like humans no, can't, it, our, humans have been genetically modified to survive in this toxic world, and the, it's the clean environment that they're reacting to. Well, not not quite. Like the yeah. way it's described is there's the miasma in the forest, and it kills humans, and it kills anything except the insects. And at some point, we learn that the forest is cleansing the world, and deep at the center of the forest, there's this landscape that's perfect and pristine. There are no humans there. The forest has died off. It's sort of, this is the, the seed of what was lost, and the, this is sort of the, the goal of the forest. Hmm. The forest has been designed to cleanse the world and recreate this landscape for humans. Uh, but then at the end, the twist is that we find out that humans can't survive in this pure landscape. Right. So the miasma is, is what we've been told it is, right. but there is also this pure landscape that is completely miasma-free, and humans can't survive there. They've right. been changed to and, survive and, in the low level of right, pollution right. that's in the rest of the world. And that's the eggs that, that Nazca destroys yeah, at the end. because there's like this mass of text, but it's also almost a living being yeah. at the center of this That was really interesting. Yeah. That has like all of the knowledge of, I guess, like the universe and the world, like a new line of text appears um, at a certain rate. Is it every yeah, day twice or every a year. year? Twice a year. Yeah. And except it's like in this code or encrypted in a way that the people studying it, it takes them way longer to figure it out. So they have as much decoded and figured out behind them as they need to decode and figure out in front of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I then, felt it was kind of like if you suddenly had E equals MC squared appear on a wall in front of you. Like, that's a very small piece of text, but to sort of unpack that and understand what you can do with that is a huge undertaking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there are also, like, these eggs that are, like, the future humans engineered to live in this mold-free place that Nausicaa allows to be destroyed. And in that moment, I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, then like pulled back and mm -hmm. thought about it, and it, yeah. it made a lot of sense. Yeah. There's the these... ending is fascinating. Mm -hmm. I... I cried a little bit at that ending line of no matter how difficult it is we must live mm -hmm. that was really powerful <laughs> yeah and that's very similar to the ending line in princess mononoke i believe at least in the english translation i heard i think the line is something like what does it mean and i think it's it means that we live mm. which is quite interesting yeah. too oh, actually, yeah. princess mononoke. oh it has a lot of um similar themes mm -hmm. and this, it's a great movie i felt like this is one of the most similar to uh, like, Mononoke is probably the most similar to Nausicaa in mm -hmm. a lot of ways, especially in its themes. Yeah. Um, There's another theme in um, Nausicaa that 
I found interesting, um, which like follows the character Nausicaa, but it's like that bad decisions don't make people unworthy of help in yeah. times of crisis, which I thought was really powerful because Nausicaa steps in to save people who have been, you know, trying to kill her, doing really bad things. Um, and she does it over and over again. And yeah, she does it over and over again. It's like, well, maybe they've done these bad things, but they are in peril and it's not like that doesn't balance things out. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I found that like a really powerful theme running through the work that really like made me stop and think. Because I feel like, I don't know, in this day and age, we're very much in like a bit of a black and white culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Things are, people are one way or another. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there's a right way and there's a wrong way and you make your decision and you can't ever change your decision. Yeah, there's mm -hmm. a, a speech that Nauska makes at one point. I don't remember where it is, so I'm not going to be able to find it right now. But she says something about how you can't look at things. I think she actually says you can't look at things in a black and white yes, way. Yes, she says it to the God Warrior. Because yeah. it's um, saying, it's demarcated like Nasca's enemies and like people she's friends with. Mm -hmm. And there's no in between. She's like, yeah. you can't do that. You can't see the world as just enemies mm. and not enemies. Like that isn't a good way to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she throws yeah. out some other names too. She includes... Um, uh, Chikuku, is that his name? Mm -hmm. As like an example of someone else who needs to think about this, which is really interesting because I mean, he's a kid, so you can understand mm -hmm. why well, he doesn't have a very complex worldview, yeah. but he's mm -hmm. also really powerful yeah. and in a position where he could become more powerful later, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, is it not implied that uh, Nausicaa marries him when he becomes of age at the very end? Oh. Of the oh, yeah, there's a line where they say, I think it's You're like right. maybe he did. forgot about that. But yeah. there is much that <laughs> remains untold, but let us end our story here. Nausicaa remained in the Duroc lands and lived with the Duroc people. One chronicle records that Nausicaa did not return to the Valley of the Wind until Shikuku had come of age. But another legend holds that she eventually left to join the Man of the Forest. History remembers Kushana as the restorer of the Toromikia, Yet she remained king regent to the end of her days, steadfastly refusing to assume the throne. Ever since that time, Toromikia has remained a country without a king. Mm -hmm. so, really interesting. Yeah. Um, I thought that there was like a romance being set up between uh, Aspel yeah. and. Uh, but it never goes anywhere. Yeah, which I like. <laughs> I'm I'm always a fan. Of, let's just cut that romance out of there, unless <laughs> it's for There's... the most part, because I'm. It would have felt too. There's, there's um, more important things going on. Yeah, like the end of the world. <laughs> one, there's one scene where like Nasca hugs him, and there's a moment, and like she pulls away, and his face is like all blushy, and he's like, <laughs> oh, "I can't forget you, my princess." And yeah. <laughs> there was some setup between her and uh, I think his name was Selm, the man of the forest. Mm. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think he actually asks her to marry him, mm -hmm. or to come away with him at least. Yeah. yeah, yeah I guess maybe she not turns marriage. Him down. Yeah. 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 I, I, I thought that was an interesting. I got down. stuff to do, sorry. He was in tune with the entire world and she was too caught up in individual lives and she yeah. felt that she needed to be there with the individual lives and focus on that mm -hmm. and do as much as she can instead of just this like general world. Mm -hmm. Even yeah. though she is like in line with his thinking, like they do yeah. have compatible ways of thought. Yeah. She she felt that she had other things yeah. she needed to do. So yeah. uh, one thing that uh, we kind of put off last episode was uh, sort of the World War II analog that mm. I feel Analogy? like is... Uh, yeah, whatever. Thingy. Yeah. Sorry. The thingy. <laughs> if we just paused, you can cut that out. No, it's too late. It's in now. Um, <laughs> but 
like it feels like a lot of this. I think I said last episode that it feels like a Japanese perspective on the Second World War, including mm -hmm. uh, the use of nuclear weapons. But I think also, uh, like I feel like this is a thing in a lot of other Japanese science fiction too, where it kind of casts World War Two as a clash of civilizations that, and it maybe doesn't necessarily have a very historical perspective on that. I think you could take issue with the idea that you have these equal and opposite civilizations that are equally doing bad things and then they just need to stop fighting but I think there's also sort of a definitely a very positive message in that too where peace is the only way out of this that if mm. you just keep fighting you will only destroy them and you yeah. and I feel like this is a, a narrative that uh, I think the West could benefit from mm -hmm. a different perspective on this well I, I would say that I think one of the, yeah, I, I totally agree, and I think that one of the big takeaways um, I got from Volume Two, and I think the other reason why maybe I, what really charged me up about Volume Two is that it was going so against typical Western action movie ideals, right? Mm -hmm. Where like the evil prince that they set up as this real evil being in the first book gets killed, and his evil spirit like finds Nausicaa, and you're like, oh no, like. She's she's gonna be in trouble. She's gonna have to fight his evil spirit. And then when he finally shows up, he is like, you know, his, his like kind of armor falls off, and Nasca just looks at him and goes like, "You're a sad creature." <laughs> and he follows her through her like kind of walk through the spirit world. And at one point, he's gonna get sort of sucked into into hell essentially, and she saves him. And it's like he gets redeemed. It's like. This is really impressive where you're like you're one of your top villains who dies redeems themselves at the at the end. They actually are able to sort of find some peace in their life and it's not about cuz he's a he does horrible things in his existence but there isn't this need to like well he did something bad so he's got to suffer forever. We got to like make sure that well, bad people suffer for what they do. Part of the theme I brought up earlier which is like you can make bad decisions but that doesn't mean that you are outside of help. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and sorry, go ahead. No, no, and that's just like a recurrent theme throughout. And yeah. I think it's really powerful, especially in that instance where, like, I don't know, the the badness that he's done sort of like moves away, and she helps him through. I found that very emotional scene. Yeah, yeah. and I I also really just like the scene where um, it's it's kind of like in the aftermath of rescuing Charuka, and uh, Kushana's got her her warship and. Uh, there's a final remaining battalion of soldiers that are going to try to retake the ship. And it looks like this is going to be a lot more violence. And um, this is when Yupa basically sacrifices himself. Um, but, like, there's a whole idea of, like, the, the citizens also, like, line up in front of the soldiers. And it's just this idea of people, like, putting themselves on the line uh, for peace. And just being like, look, we, if we keep fighting, we're all going to die, so... I'm going to stand between you and these other guys, and if you want to keep fighting, you're going to have to murder me first. Mm -hmm. And it kind of forcing the issue of, like, look, you just have to put your guns down. And they're like, no, but we got to, we can't lose. And it's like, look, it's not about winning or losing anymore. Like, we're all in this together, and we just have to stop fighting. And just this idea of, of people, um, there's just so many great moments of, like, peace between people. Like, that, that they're... You'd think with the opening, with the intro of this book, with Volume 1, that this would all be like battle after battle after battle, but so often two forces approach and then there's something to try and diffuse it. Like there's this beautiful scene where like they, 
they send the guy forward with the spear and he has the sword and the bread. Oh, I love that. Me too. And it's just I like, which do you choose? Scene, <laughs> and, and there's even the caption at the end where they're like, and so in this great time of war, this was this one time where both sides were like, hey, let's break bread and let's just stop this, you know? Yeah, it feels like it's a very um, intelligent approach to the idea of pacifism where it doesn't, it doesn't try and pitch peace as something that's easy or something that's inevitable. Um, mm-hmm. Like, achieving peace is hard. Like, getting people to stop fighting, that's not something that happens every day. Uh, and I really appreciate how complicated it is, and yet it sticks to this message of war, it leads to destruction, we need an alternative. Mm-hmm. One thing I really appreciate about the series is that Sometimes when you're doing a post-apocalyptic story, you can make war and the apocalypse look really cool. Yeah. And murder look cool and <laughs> things like that. That's like every zombie movie. This is why I don't like zombie movies. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think Miyazaki did a great job of creating this rich, compelling, and fascinating world, but also showing the horror of what a world like this would look like and showing the violence. Mm-hmm. Um, of war and um, of what a post-apocalyptic world would be, showing how horrifying it is. Yeah, absolutely. Miyazaki's pulling no punches, where he's mm-hmm. just, you know, like, look, we gotta shape up, we gotta stop, like, <laughs> we gotta stop fighting, we gotta stop messing with the natural world, we mm-hmm. gotta, you know... Yeah, like, the apocalypse <laughs> is not g- going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I like having this much Miyazaki as a single story. Uh, like everything else I know of Miyazaki is his movies, which are all about two hours long. And you can get a lot into two hours, but this is two gigantic volumes. I don't lost track of how many hours it took me to read it all. That's a lot of story. You can get a lot more detail and depth. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like a more kind of intimate experience mm-hmm. than, yeah. than a mo- single movie. Yeah, I can't say I was expecting to be as moved by this manga as I was. Mm-hmm. Like I went into it with not necessarily low expectations, but I definitely didn't know what I was stepping into and despite some of my grumblings about various things and the fact that apparently I can't tell people apart and characters <laughs> are the same, like there's so much in this work that is so moving and I think will stick with me. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm definitely looking forward to revisiting this and going through it, reading it a second time um, for real to like delve a little deeper because it's it touches on a lot of like existential anxieties but also somehow managed to make me feel calmer about them hmm. even through like how horrific a lot of this is like at the end of the book I felt a little bit more at peace mm-hmm. with some of that like existential terror Well, I I think that, again, I think it comes back to that almost kind of like Zen outlook where it's just like, you know, don't fight it. Don't don't be like the 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 holy emperor and just artificially augment yourself until you're no longer a human anymore. Just make peace with this is it. You you get this and and don't don't fight against it, you know, Um, because I think that's really the the evil comes out of all of this like resistance to just letting the natural world play out right it's like the hubris of man that they thought they could go in and control everything 
is what causes the problems, you know? And but it's also not anti-human. Right. Like, uh, Nausicaa spends a lot of time deciding humans deserve to go extinct because of everything we've done. But she also spends even more time trying to rescue every single last person she can find. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's very... It's a very interesting balance between humanism versus almost kind of an extreme environmentalism. Did you guys think that there was any symbolic meaning behind uh, Tato's death? Huh. The little squirrel? Because I haven't had enough time to think it through, but I, I did wonder about his death and maybe how that fit into the symbolism and the, and the themes of this book. Hmm. I'm not sure. I do have a literal interpretation, which might lead us down a, a path in terms of interpreting that scene. Um, she's, Nausicaa's writing with the god warrior, and I think it was implied that he was emitting radiation. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And from what I understand, smaller creatures die more quickly, they get radiation poisoning more quickly. So I interpreted that that Tato, because he's such a small little fox, he basically got radiation poisoning, and she did as well, to some extent. Well, she got healed, where yeah, Tato had already passed away. In fact, that was like when she gets kind of rescued, she wakes up, and Tato's dead, and then it's like she they managed to do something to like prevent the radiation sickness from taking her, but mm -hmm. it was too late for Tato. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe, I don't know, in a way, like, again, I'm not sure about symbolism, but I definitely feel like that was a really strong sign of the danger Nausicaa was in being carried around in the palm of the hand of this giant radioactive, ra radioactive monster, monster. <laughs> um, which I I'd like to, t I, well, maybe we can talk more about Tato, but I'd also like to just talk a little bit about uh, Oma as well. Well, we don't have a whole lot of time left. Okay. Um, does anyone have any final thoughts on the book? I do, actually. Okay. I've been thinking about this. Um, at one point near the end, Nausicaa says you denied death. And I've heard that one of Miyazaki's big um, inspirations in general has been Ursula K. Le Guin's um, Tales from Earthsea. Ooh. Um, and that is a huge theme in that series. And there is a wizard in the series who tries to become immortal, who denies death. And that it, a lot of it ties into the denial of death and how that prevents life. And that to live forever is not life at all. It's the opposite of life. So if you haven't read it, like it's an incredible series. John is a huge fan. Yeah, Ursula oh, yes. Guin, my like, favorite author, fan. hands yeah. down. Like my favorite author as well. Yeah. So like if anybody's like hearing this and they like Miyazaki, um, that's a great place to go to to like cover those themes and go into that like intriguing fantasy world mm -hmm. as well. Because she's like a great science fiction and a great fantasy author. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just something I wanted to mention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's I didn't know that. That's cool. Ah, so, um, would you recommend this book? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think, like, this is such a powerful piece of fiction, and, like, both narrative levels and then also art-wise. Like, anyone who's into drawing or doing visual things at all, regardless of whether you're a cartoonist or not, should look at this work because the, like, the depth, the sense of, like, space and form and lighting and like just mastery with hatching oh yeah the cross hatching even, like yeah. you won't yeah. get that in a Miyazaki movie because it all has to move so it's like you can't cross hatch but the his well it's not really inks because it's all pencil but his quote-unquote inking technique is great and the way that that's paired with very sparse screen tones 
like just the visuals in this book are astounding and are definitely something to look at as like a student of the art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, ten out of ten would recommend unless you don't like bugs. Like, if you have a bug phobia, maybe skip it. If you have a bug phobia, I'm going to say read this book anyways. You might feel differently by the end. You might love bugs. I (laughs) did. I found the Omu so compassionate. And normally, like, all those little leggy things. Have you ever seen a picture of a giant isopod? Yes. They look like giant isopods, except more giant. Hmm. (laughs) When I first saw a picture of a giant isopod, I was like, oh, no, it's an Omu. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, but yeah, they're very... Uh, I think it's really interesting that the bugs uh, end up being these like really sympathetic creatures because I think the perception of bugs is that they're like the worst, <laughs> most like emotionless, ruthless creatures in the world. And Also fungus, like fungus is creepy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting that they sort of, Miyazaki chose to personify those particular elements as these really beautiful, sympathetic entities um because we often associate them with much more negative qualities right but yeah i would i would totally also recommend this book i think uh pick it up in fact now that it's um nicely organized in just two simple volumes two giant volumes yeah oh man i had to read these at my desk because <laughs> it was a little too big for like in bed reading and definitely not a read in the bath book because mm-hmm. you will drop it on yourself oh, i my I'm, my back is going to be happy that I don't have to carry these giant hardcovers around because the only time... I had to just keep these with me to keep reading them anytime I had a free moment. Uh, so, yeah. But anyways, pick up the slipcase. It's great. It's a good book. And actually, I was just going to say, uh, John, thank you for recommending that we do this episode because I don't think I would have read this if you hadn't made it a Trade Waiters. Yeah, and I wouldn't have. It, yeah, it was you. like totally worthwhile. It was a fantastic choice. Like, I agree with everything um, Jeff and Kathleen said. I would definitely recommend it. Okay. Well, I would definitely recommend this because I didn't want to pick it. Yeah, you already um, did. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've got a few minutes. Maybe we could talk about the movie a little Ooh. bit. Yeah, I had some thoughts about the movie. Okay. Um, John came over the other night and we watched it together. One thing I found interesting in the translation between the movie and the comic is um, it's Sea of Decay in the movie in the subtitles, but Sea of Corruption in hmm. the manga and i i personally like sea of corruption a little bit better because i feel like it more embodies the uh like how the humans feel about yeah, that yeah. scene it's like it's corrupted the land as opposed to oh the land is just dying mm-hmm. um yeah i would agree with that yeah that i i should just also proviso and say that i had every intention of watching nausicaa before we recorded this but i could not fit in the time for it so I don't have much to contribute, but I'm really interested in your thoughts on the anime, and I'm planning to watch it after this episode. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> useful. Um, Someone sorry. Was, um, you can just cut all that out, I guess. That's fine. It's in. It's in. Uh, someone was asking me the other day like whether it's better to watch the movie first or read the book first. Um, I think I would recommend watching the movie first. I like I'd read the first couple hundred pages um, before we watched the movie and I found the movie actually like helped me sort of situate who was who mm. a little bit better it's also the, there's not really any spoilers in the the movie it ends much earlier on it basically cuts out like everything from the opening scene to the very very end and um, 
it feels like it's a nice sort of preview of this world. Then you read the book and you get the whole big picture. Yeah, I enjoy mm. them as companion pieces to enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, I think when we watched it, we ended and I was like, that w there was no resolution! <laughs> <laughs> uh, which... I mean, I like non-endings, but I found there were, like, too many questions maybe the movie left, which is why it was great to have the manga to go to. Like, oh, yes, I can find what? out why things are the way they are. John, you might know this, but was there a plan to do, like, a part two? No, this, this was it. Like, the original idea, the original concept was a movie, and then it became this comic, which kind of, like, blew out beyond all expectations for the length of the story. I think... Uh, Miyazaki even said at one point he was just going to keep making this story because he knew what the ending was and he did the like the typical manga thing where you, you have you have the beginning of the story you know the end and you stretch out the middle until your publisher says they've had enough right um, so I don't think there was ever any plan to make a sequel or anything it's like the that movie ends approximately where the book ends and how do you feel about the movie Jess? oh so I have a story, I hope it won't be too long because we're short for time, but when I was a little kid, um, like I was saying earlier, and there's still video stores, my dad would take us out to watch a movie, you know, once a week, right? And every single week I would pick the same movie and it would be nausea. <laughs> and my dad would get so tired of it, he'd be like, why do you always pick the same movie every single time? So mm. I, I just loved it. Like, I, I think that it's an absolutely amazing movie, but I'm extremely biased. So it's sort of hard for me to talk about it because it's so nostalgic for me. But in terms of order of reading or watching, um, I'd probably watch the movie first because you get sort of a, a taste of what the world's like. And then if you really love it, you have this whole um, extra world to explore in it because the books are just so much more in-depth and you get more themes and content and characterization. So I'd probably watch the movie first because it's also a great movie. So it... Uh, yeah, you've got like even more to look forward to in a way. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to watch it <laughs> based on these comments. Yeah, like I feel um, like going from book to movie feels a little disappointing actually because it leaves out so much. Yeah, um, and, and it's a really good movie, so that like doesn't. That's not yeah. a good way to experience the movie, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, something someone said to me a while ago is that you're. First Miyazaki movie is always your favorite Miyazaki movie, <laughs> um, which I feel is true because my first Miyazaki movie was Princess Mononoke, and that is my favorite. Um, but Jess, would you say that Nasca is your favorite Miyazaki movie? Okay, so this is a funny story as well. <laughs> um, when I was way too young to watch Princess Mononoke, like probably seven or eight, um, my mom was like, "Oh, look, a cartoon movie. Let's you know read this and watch this," and I was absolutely terrified like I was <laughs> crying and hiding because it's it's a pretty violent movie oh yeah it, and it was just the stuff of nightmares um the big the boards covered in worms oh and like <laughs> vomiting blood and um yeah. people running around with animal skins on them um sort of pretending to be boars and yeah um so that was like the the first experience I had watching a Miyazaki movie that was the first one I saw as well oh. <laughs> just way too young <laughs> And then I watched Nausicaa and Totoro, and it's it's really hard to pick a favorite because I do love them all. I love Princess Mononoke. That's might be my favorite actually, but I don't know if I can pick. Like I just okay. I think they're hmm. so good okay. to be honest. I, I think the first Miyazaki movie I saw was Spirited Away. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure about that, but that is my favorite. Hmm. So, 
that fits your theory at least. Yeah. I probably watched way less Miyazaki than the rest of you. Like I haven't seen Spirited Away um, or Princess Mononoke. I think the first one I saw was um, The Cat Returns, or is it the? Oh, no, yeah. it's Whispers of the Heart. Whispers of the Heart was the first. Mm. Oh no, that's not even. That's just Studi- Studio Ghibli. I don't think it's Miyazaki. Never mind. I'm not I sure. I think you're right. Yeah. I think that is Never mind. Studio Ghibli is not Miyazaki. No, I don't know what my first Miyazaki film was because I. Parco Rosso, maybe? Yes. Mm. That's actually oh. Miyazaki? Mm-hmm. That's actually one of my favorites. Because I went through like, a phase in middle school of just like, well, renting from Blockbuster, the uh, <laughs> Studio Ghibli movies. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I always think of Whispers of the Heart, but I guess that's not Miyazaki. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, delete all my comments. <laughs> all right, uh, we are definitely out of time now. We've already had our warning call here. Uh, what is our next book going to be? Oh, we are going to be reading The Essential Dykes to Watch Out For by Alison Bechdel. Okay. Maybe let's just do a quick round where you can tell us your name and your website. Uh, I'm Jonathan Dalton. You can find me at www.lostcitycomics.com. All right. And I'm Jeff Ellis. You can find me at jeff-ellis.ca. I'm Kathleen Gross, and you can find my work at cagcomics.tumblr.com, which is K-A-G-C-O-M-I-X. And this week we were joined by the delightful Jess Pollard. Thank you very much for having me again. Um, I do a webcomic called Liquid Shell, which you can find at liquidshell.tumblr.com. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in their Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the Music. You can find us at www.cloudscapecomics.com, tradewaiters.tumblr.com. Okay, all right. That okay. was a second URL, not That's all fine. like That's one. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Yay!